0: Would you join me once more in prayer as we uh, go to the Lord for understanding? Father, we thank you for the word which you have delivered to us uh, in ages past. Uh, We thank you for your uh, providence in preserving your word, uh, which has now been handed to us. And Lord, we pray uh, that you would send your Spirit to be among us, to be with us, to sharpen our minds, uh, to convict us of sin, to draw us to a clarity in understanding your word and in all things that you would be preeminent here and now in this time as we open our hearts and our minds to all that you have to teach us. Uh, we ask for your grace in this. Amen. So we come now to Luke chapter 12 and verse 35. And uh, as you as you know, we've been uh, for some time now in the gospel of Luke. Uh, and here we come to a parable that uh, is similar to some others in the text of Luke's gospel. Uh, namely, it's uh, what are called the hard sayings of Jesus. These, these are words that uh, are, are difficult to swallow, difficult to stomach, uh, but nevertheless edifying. And uh, in all things, we would say, because it's uh, incorporated in Scripture, uh, profitable for teaching, for understanding, and as Paul says, for also rebuke and for training in righteousness, that we would be, as people of God, disciples who are equipped in every way to be good and faithful disciples. Uh, The question I want to draw your mind, uh, draw to your attention is found there uh, in the text uh, in verse 42, Uh, and and there the Lord says, who is then the faithful and wise steward? And that is the question that we are going to put before our minds today. Who is the faithful and wise steward? If I could answer that question just briefly uh, and then begin to unpack why I think that is the case in the text. Uh, The faithful and wise steward is the one who fears the Lord. fears the Lord. This is teaching, I think, is abundantly clear in Scripture in the Old and the New Testament, but I think Jesus is drawing to our mind that in the New Testament, a fear of the Lord is just as important a quality in a disciple as it was in the Old Testament to be a faithful Israelite. So let's turn now our minds and our eyes to the text uh, and, and see if this really is so, if that is what it takes to be a faithful and wise steward. Verse thirty-five, you see uh, the quotation there from Jesus. Uh, he says, uh, "Gird up your loins," as some old English translations would say it. Uh, uh, Cinch up your belt. We we have uh, phrases like this in English. Uh, you want to be dressed, prepared, uh, and ready to go uh, for whatever is going to come your way. Right? Uh, when you are running, uh, you will first tie your shoes before you embark on running. Uh, if you're going to be wearing anything proper and go to a fancy dinner or something, you'll dress appropriately so too uh, the faithful servant will here dress appropriately for the task at hand. Uh, Here uh, in verse 35, the the ESV says uh, to stay dressed for action. Uh, That means we are to be ready at all times with our bow always strung, with our sword always sharpened, uh, and with our minds and hearts holy and rendered unto the Lord always uh, for the task at hand. What is the task that we have been given? In verse 35, you see that the text says that we are to keep our lamps burning And be like those who are waiting for their master to come home from a wedding so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So the goal of the disciple, at least the task here elucidated by Christ, is that we are to be prepared with burning lamps ready to receive our master at his return from the wedding celebration. Well, here, uh, we, we would say, of course, that makes sense. If you've been tasked for some time to receive your master, uh, it makes sense. If you are to receive him, you should be ready to do so. It's your sole job, sole responsibility. Well, this becomes a little bit more difficult in the text, as you'll notice, uh, because nobody knows exactly when the master is coming home. You'll see there uh, in verse uh, 37, uh, there's this possibility that the servants might not be awake when he comes home. You'll see there he says, uh, blessed are are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes home. Now, that term there, blessed, is the same uh, you will see in the Beatitudes, uh, where you see uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are humble, uh, blessed are uh, all, the, all the different Beatitudes. This text here uh, is, is another Beatitude, if you like. Uh, it's the, the unknown one. Uh, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake. Uh, blessed are those who, prepare, who are prepared, who are dressed for action, who are uh, ready and who have lamps burning to receive their master. But what happens when the servants here uh, receive uh, their master? Now, this is a strange reversal, but it's a very kingdom reversal. In verse uh, 37, uh, the second sentence, it says, "Uh, truly I say unto you, uh, he will dress himself. This is the master who will do so. He will dress himself for service and have them, the servants, recline at the table, and he, the master, will come and serve them. think about how strange that is, that the master says when he comes home and the servants are found ready, he will come actually and serve them at them receiving him back. Is this not strange for Christ to say to his servants? uh, And and we we obviously standing downstream uh, of the history of the unfolding of these events know, well, Jesus actually does do that exact thing. He, He actually will go forth and lay down his life for his servants. He will model for them what it is to serve. And then he will say, I'm coming again the same way that I have left you. And therefore, be ready. (laughs) Be ready to receive me when I come back. And what is the reward for a servant? Uh, The reward for a servant when he comes back uh, is that Christ will come and serve them. Now, this is not some strange reversal where we will have authority over Christ. The master is serving as a model of what it looks like to be in the kingdom. He is still all authority. He is still all powerful. He is not beneath us. He simply serves us because that is what it is to be in the kingdom, to serve uh, or to lead by serving, as some would say. Now, that term, I think, is often misunderstood in our our context. Servant leadership is often taken to mean simply service. Uh, But Christ tells us that servant leadership or uh, servant lordship, if you you like to use the term of the text, uh, that means that he's going to come with all authority and show us what it is like to serve. And the only people who get that kind of reward are those who are found ready notice that in the text it's not everyone who is there it's only the ones who are found ready Uh, this this might be uh if you you were to use uh, modern terminology modern language uh, how many of you have heard the american proverb uh, it's not how you start it's how you finish Uh, i've had my mom and dad tell me that several times growing up particularly when i would do poorly in sports or poorly in events early on in the sports season you know, you have a bad day of batting, a bad, a bad uh, pitching outing. And they would always say, without fail on the car ride home, it's not, you know, it's not how you start. It's going to be how you finish. Well, that would really depend on how the rest of the season went, if that was a good news or bad news. Uh, but Jesus is some, saying something similar here. It, it's nothing when the master leaves for the wedding to be ready to see him off and to have your lamp burning at that time. Uh, it's quite a bit different. If you don't know exactly when he's coming back, and it's going to be possibly at an inconvenient time, uh, possibly in the, uh, the small hours of the morning while the sun is down. And then he comes back and he finds you sleeping. The possibility uh, to fall asleep and to, let's say, become relaxed with your situation is much more tempting the longer the master draws out his stay at the wedding. I wonder uh, if that doesn't ring true 2,000 years after Christ has ascended. And here we find ourselves... Uh, let's say, at the richest time in the history of the church in terms of influence, in terms of strength, in terms of theology, uh, in terms of wealth, just financially what the church is able to do, and in terms of spread. And here we find ourselves 2,000 years downstream of Christ's words. And yet, uh, nowhere can you go uh, in history and find Christians who are more apathetic toward the waiting and finishing well. So often it is the case that uh, we we think to ourselves, well, he hasn't come in 2,000 years. You know, he certainly won't come in the next 50. I've got a lot of time in between now and then. The warning here from Jesus is that no matter how long he's drawn out his stay, no matter how long he has delayed, there's always this imminence. There's always this uh, warning of his return. And the warning serves to warn those who are lazy, Uh, And it serves to encourage those who are staying awake. It validates their discipline. It validates their pursuit of holiness. It validates their girding up their loins and being always prepared for the return of their master. This is something we need, I think, to hear desperately uh, in in the modern church because we, uh, more than anyone else, I think, find ourselves in this really apathetic place where we are stewards of the household, but we really have dropped the ball in terms of all the tasks that have been given to us. So here then Jesus says to his disciples, uh, stay ready, uh, gird up your loins, burn your lamps, and be ready when the master comes. Because in verse 39, he tells us that it is obvious that if we knew when the master was coming back, or as he reverses it here, if if the master of the house, those are the stewards who are possessing the house, uh, if they had known at what hour the thief was coming, Uh, they would not have left the house to be broken into. They would have been always ready to, let's say, defend the house against the coming of the thief. Now notice who's the thief in this this phrase. Verse 40, uh, you also then should be ready for the son of man is coming at a time where you do not expect him to come. He's coming at a time where you won't know. So who's the thief? The thief is the son of man who comes at an hour that you don't know. Uh, This is a similar kind of idea to the strong man who binds up the weak man. Uh, Once the strong man is bound up, uh, his house is plundered. Uh, Jesus is the one who is, remember, plundering the house in that instance. And so to hear Jesus is the thief, if you like, who's coming at an hour that you don't expect because a robber doesn't tell you when they're going to come break into your house. Uh, Neither will the Son of Man tell you when he's returning. And you should always be ready because that's what he calls us to do. Now, you might say, well, if he wanted us to be ready, wouldn't he just tell us when he's coming back? Uh, And then we would know. And then we would not have this temptation towards laziness. Uh, But God, being God and not being dependent upon us, can give us rather arbitrary commands as a test of faithfulness. Consider the Garden of Eden, where he says you can eat of all these trees, but just not that one. Now, the question is, do you obey him out of trust and reverence and understanding of his goodness or Do you say, well, that doesn't quite make much sense to me. I need an explanation or else I'm going to go ahead and transgress that boundary. Consider the Israelites. When Moses goes up onto the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord and how after delaying for some time they conclude, he's been on the mountain for 40 days. Who is Moses to us? Let us go and build a calf for ourselves and worship the God who brought us out of Egypt. Moses, when he left to the mountain, didn't tell them, I'll be gone for 40 days and then I'll be back. God didn't tell Moses to say that kind of thing. The Israelites are still required to be obedient despite the fact that they don't know when Moses is coming back. They're just supposed to stay there, be patient, and wait because he is coming back. God has led them out of Egypt, and so too here we stand 2,000 years after the ascension of Christ with much the same level of instruction. He will return as he came. He will come, and at that time he will be the master and consecrate ruler of all the earth, and he will be felt in final judgment over all creation. And we ought to be ready to receive him at his return. The temptation for us who are quickly distracted and who are very slow uh, to endure, uh, the temptation for all of us is to uh, be tempted towards laziness, towards despondency, and ultimately towards apathy. That is the great, great temptation. Now, this is... uh, Often the case, I think, of spiritual highs and then, let's say, the everyday life of the believer. When we gather, I don't know if you've ever had experience going to a summer camp when you were a child growing up, possibly a Christian summer camp, you would have a wonderful time of fellowship, good games, good time with camp counselors, uh, the preaching of the word, singing of worship music. Uh, and then you would come off that three or two day or maybe week long camp, concluding that you will never sin again. Uh, You will never struggle with temptation again. And you will be the most obedient servant of the Lord that anyone has ever seen. Until until the end of the summer and the beginning of the school year and the rolling into the routines and the rhythms and the, the sports and the homework and the classes and all of a sudden, it's a distant and faded memory. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. The faithful and the wise steward, the faithful servant, is always ready to finish the race. They always have prepared for themselves to finish well. They're never burning themselves out. They're never despondent. They're always, as you, if you like, with their hand to the plow, striving steadily forward. It's not about, we've, we visited this when we saw uh, the uh, ascension, or not, not the ascension, the, the transfiguration, when Jesus has this mountaintop experience where he exposes three of his disciples to his unveiled glory, he essentially concludes with them, uh, you don't need this forever. Uh, you need to remember this, but you need to go out now and you need to be faithful to it. Uh, we, we think often that if Jesus wanted us to be faithful, if he wanted discipleship to be easy, he would be right by our side and, and helping us along the whole way. And he tells us he is. Uh, by the ordinary means of grace, by the sending of the Spirit, by the reading of the Word, by the preaching of the Word, by the singing of worship to the Lord, and by the fellowship of the saints. These are the ordinary means of grace which he has given us to access, uh, to keep our tank full uh, so that we never run out of fuel and we never are so uh, fast that we burn ourselves out. We are to run this steady race. We are to uh, resist the temptation of boredom and despondency and instead, unlike the Israelites who conclude let's worship false gods and do whatever we want because Moses is gone, uh, we are to stay always ready for the return of the master. There are few things, few things in the Christian walk that will quench your zeal as much as despondency and boredom. Um, Outright temptation is is not really a direct threat if you are riding a spiritual high because you can see it for what it is and you can identify it for what it is and you can walk away from it. Uh, But what about, let's say, three months into a very dry period of your Christian faith? where you have a hard time getting up and reading the word, or you have a hard time communing with other saints, or you have a hard time really enjoying just the time with the Lord in prayer. Perhaps you neglect reading and prayer for some time, and then the smallest of temptations can topple you. The boredom is the, the setup to the failure, but it really in itself is unfaithfulness. It is unfaithfulness because uh, you'll, you'll see in the text here, The coming of the master, all it does is reveal the state of the servant. It doesn't actually change anything about what they were doing. They were up to no good. The master found them up to no good. Uh, That's that's what he uh, sees here. As opposed to those who are up to faithful observance and obedience and who are found to be faithful. These are the ones who the master will reward by serving them. This is the promise of Jesus to his faithful servants. But notice also before we uh, move on to the second half of the text, uh, this this assurance of the coming of the master. Uh, You might not know when he's coming. Uh, You might not know exactly the right time and you shouldn't know the time because Jesus tells us no one knows the time. But here's what we should know. We should know that he is definitely coming back. In the New Testament, this assurance of his return is the background and backbone for faithful endurance and living unto holiness and observing all the commandments of God and being a faithful disciple. To endure to the end, as 1 Peter tells the disciples to do in his context, uh, is to be reminded that Jesus is coming back. To endure to the end, as John writes Revelation, is to be reminded that Jesus is coming back. Uh, It doesn't matter what Rome's up to. It doesn't matter what kind of wickedness and temptation and all kinds of uh, destruction and persecution happens. doesn't matter. Jesus is coming back. Hold fast. Be faithful. Don't become lazy. Don't become uh, despondent. Don't become bored in your walk. There's nothing that will tempt you more than that kind of boredom. But now uh, let's turn our attention to verse 41 of the text uh, where we see... uh, uh, an interesting question from Peter, and one that I think is possibly helpful for understanding the text, but you'll need to walk with me a little bit to understand that. So verse 41, uh, Peter goes to uh, Jesus and he says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? It's a strange question. What Peter's asking is, are you saying it for you know, the 12, the, the apostles who you've appointed, or are you telling it for all disciples? Now, here Jesus is going to turn around and tell a different illustration, a different uh, parable. And in the second parable, notice the the status of the servant who is unfaithful or faithful. So uh, Jesus says in verse 42 Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them a portion of food for the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So the servant who has been tasked with a job has been tasked not with normal servant duties, but with responsibilities over other servants. So you might say, well, that, that seems like Jesus is answering the question uh, by saying it's, it's just for you, Peter, you and you and the 12. And in some sense he is. Now you might say, well, that doesn't have anything to do with me because I'm not one of the apostles and you, you'd be right, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have any direct let's say, overflow application towards you, but you'll, you need to be careful with this, okay? So follow the logic. If, if the task to be a faithful manager of the house comes first to Peter and the, and the 12, it does in some sense overflow because all of us, all of us as disciples are in some sense responsible for others in discipleship. So the apostles are responsible for those who are underneath them for the deacons and for the early church The early Church is responsible to appoint elders who are over those local congregations and the people who are over those local congregations uh, and the members of those congregations are responsible for discipling those who are new in the faith As Titus will say, the responsibility of the older women is to train the younger women the responsibility of the older men is to train the younger men the responsibility of the elders is to train the Church members the responsibility of the elders is to have been trained by the disciples So as you see the overflow, uh, it's not as though, because you're not Peter or one of the 12, this doesn't land on you. Uh, It lands on you insofar as you have other people who are following after you, or who you are responsible for, for delivering the word to. Now, as a first level of application, uh, this strikes right at the heart of the modern uh, pastor, who is over a local body, a local church, and, and they are told, essentially, not to be lazy and unfaithful stewards of the Word. The temptation for Timothy in First Timothy is to be, uh, to depart from the word, to depart from study, and to get caught up in all kinds of drama and, and other things in his local congregation. Uh, the temptation for the modern pastor uh, is much like the temptation for all servants, which is to become a despondent. conclude the master's not coming anytime soon, so I can do whatever I want. Uh, well, then what happens if, if that's the case? Well, then uh, you depart from the preaching of the word and you tell people what you think they need to hear for good wisdom, for life and living. Uh, you depart from uh, prayer and the singing of hymns that worship God and you ask the people, what do you want to have heard sung on a Sunday uh, and what will bring you in as, as good music? Uh, you stop feeding people things that are difficult to hear because that might mean they might not come back. And instead you conclude, well, if, this is, if the master's not coming back anytime soon, I can do whatever I want for my glory and I'll build a a big church, a big sanctuary, all these things. Uh, And then, uh, you know, you multiply that out by 150 years and and you really have the American church, which uh, prioritizes the itching ears of people who don't want to be told about sin, who don't want to be told about discipleship, who don't want to be told about anything else. And well, who's responsible for that? In some sense, it's the people who demanded to be taught these things. And in another sense, the, the responsibility lands squarely on those who are tasked with teaching them faithfully to the word and not whatever they wanted to hear. So as a first order of rebuke, uh, it comes to pastors who are to be wise managers over the household of God and faithful stewards of it. Uh, And you might be saying, well, why are we talking about this? Because, you know, most of you aren't pastors. Well, I'm telling you this because you need to know what is required of a faithful pastor. Because as soon as someone steps outside of these boundaries, they are being an unfaithful steward and uh, that would be an inappropriate thing, a, a wrong thing, and, and you should demand faithfulness from those who preach God's word. So we, we see here then, then the overflow. How does this carry on out? Now, think about your own situation. Not only can you know what is required of those who are above you, uh, who are to preach the word faithfully to you and teach you faithfully in all things, you can also know what's required of you for anyone who you might be responsible for discipling. In God's providence, in the outworking of history and time, which God is over all and in all and through all, you might stumble across someone who has never heard the gospel or is brand new to the faith and needs to be taught the word of God. And the question is at that time, uh, let's say uh, you are now in charge or a steward over a, a new person, a new disciple. You're responsible for another person in the kingdom of God. Are you going to tell them whatever they want to hear? Are you going to befriend them and be nice to them, but not really tell them hard things? Uh, Or are you going to do difficult things like encourage them when they need encouragement, but also call out sin when sin needs to be called out? Are you going to train them all of what God's word says or just the parts that are okay for us to hear today? Are you going to teach them only about the grace and love of God and not about the holiness of his love and the holiness of his grace and the holiness of his wrath and judgment? We need to hear all things because what we can't do with the word of God is divided up however we choose to. We need to teach them the full counsel of God's word and that responsibility is for every single person. All are commanded to go therefore and make disciples. It's not just the apostles who have to make disciples because if that was the case, uh, that would have been done by uh, 90 AD when John passes away. It's the disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples and the task of that chain is to essentially anyone who's responsible for someone who's coming after them. So here, the overflow of the text. Uh, Yes, it's only for those who are over the household, but uh, that includes you, Christian, who have anyone who's under you or who you are responsible for. Now, if you don't have anyone, think about this. How would you prepare now so that in a year's time, in two years time, whoever the Lord in his providence brings your way, you would be able to faithfully disciple? If you don't have anyone now, you need to be asking that kind of question. How can I prepare now? What can I fill my mind and heart and soul with so that I can be a faithful steward? This is uh, the classic situation uh, uh, if you think about uh, sports and, and professional sports. Uh, you get the call up from the minor leagues. You're, you're playing on a minor league team. You're training. Are you training faithfully so that when you get the call to the major league team, you'll be ready to go? You'll be ready to pitch. You'll be ready to bat. You'll be ready to do what you need to do to earn your spot on the roster. Well, there's many of us who are disciples and who are training right now so that when we get the call for someone to be under us, who we are responsible for, are you ready to receive that call? Uh, Because in God's providence, he's wise enough. He won't give you someone if you're not ready to handle them. He won't give you someone to disciple his people if you will be unfaithful in discipling them. So you need to prepare now so that you can faithfully disciple whoever the Lord brings your way. It's the call of the Christian today to be a faithful discipler of others. So now uh, let's, let's get the rest of the way through this, this parable of Jesus here. So uh, we've already discussed who it goes to. Now, now observe the, the warning. In verse 43, Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour that he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Now here we get to the hard saying of the text. That's a rather hard saying. You might say, well, that doesn't seem particularly kind of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, who, had, we, as we saw, read earlier in the in the service, uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, but if you don't, I will cut you to pieces. That's, that's uh, a little off tone, right? Here's the point. Especially in the West, we have this tendency to underscore the attributes of God which we enjoy, uh, which we prefer, uh, and to ignore or downplay or de-emphasize the ones which we don't. A good theologian, and frankly a good disciple, will in equal measure in equal part present God to you as the word presents God to us. So yes, Jesus has an easy and light to bear yoke because he goes and works on our behalf to make it easy and light to bear. But this does not mean that we as disciples are not responsible to walk out and live in the fear of the Lord as we walk out our discipleship. Because although the master Uh, in this case, God, is all-sovereign, all-wise, all-knowing, who is over all things. Uh, He still has a demand for the person who he puts in charge of his household, namely that he would be faithful. And the difference between faithfulness and unfaithfulness, the, the wise and faithful steward, I told you at the beginning, I think is fearing the Lord, fearing the Lord rightly. So who is the wise and faithful steward? It's the one who fears his master appropriately. Now, what does the fear of the master look like on the ground? It looks like giving those other servants essentially the regular portions of what they need. So what, is it, what does it look like to be a faithful steward? It simply means you just keep the household exactly how you found it. You steward it well, and you don't break anything. You don't, you don't assert yourself in authority positions where you don't go. Look at, look at here, uh, what is required of the servant. Look, his, his misstep goes in verse 45, where he says to himself, my master is delayed in coming. And he, then, then what does he do? Well, if his master is delayed in coming, if he's got some runway, uh, he's going to abuse his authority position. So he's going to begin to beat the male and the female servants. He's going to begin to eat, drink, and get drunk. Don't miss what Luke's doing. That's a callback to the rich fool who says, Well, if the master is late in coming, if I have all this stuff stored up for me, I will eat, drink, and get drunk. And that's where he he missteps. So here the unfaithful servant says this, and the master of that servant will come at a day where he does not expect him. And uh, if you like the paraphrase of this, uh, and he will punish him accordingly to all his wickedness. He will cut him to pieces and put him with the unfaithful, as verse uh, 47 tells us. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive, will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be expected. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So consider this. You have, uh, in verse 47, 48, it's not just those who know what's going on who do unfaithfully, who receive a beating. Uh, it's also those who don't know what's required of them who receive a beating for doing the wrong things. Now, you might say, uh, that does not seem fair either because they didn't know. And no, they didn't. Because they did not know and they deserved a beating and they did what deserved a beating and they will receive then a light beating. Okay? So it's, it's God being gracious in some sense, but justice will be done. So, what does it look like? It, it means, uh, you might ask the question, how is it? That in verse 48, they don't know. And how is it that they're held responsible even though they don't know? Well, where do you think they learned it from? Where do you think they learned how to be unfaithful? Consider this. The master delays in coming not for days, but for years, for decades. And the first servant who's put over the household who knows what the will of the master is, does unfaithfully. And then when he goes and passes away, he passes the baton to another servant who takes his mantle or maybe usurps the throne from him. And that other servant, the second one, who did not know the will of the master, but he's going to follow in the pattern of the servant before him. Well, he doesn't really know what he's doing that's wrong, but he's doing unfaithfully and he will be held liable for that. Not as liable as the one who taught wrongly, but still liable. Now you can consider why the punishment is so fitting in verse 46 that the one who does wrongly even though he knows the will of the master is hacked to pieces. He's cut apart. He will be uh, torn asunder. And he will be placed in the category unfaithful. So too, he will be beaten heavily. And those who do things that, are, that they didn't know will be beaten lightly, but they'll all receive a beating. And the conclusion, the application, everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. Everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. So here you have a a teaching from Jesus that puts us in the West, in the 21st century, here where we stand in the history of the church, in direct target of the gun. We are, if you like, the most wealthy, the most knowledgeable, the most responsible for knowing what is required. And yet, uh, we often don't do what is required. If you consider, uh, for example, uh, a Christian in the Middle Ages, not at the period of time in the Middle Ages where the church was doing well, but in the period of time what's called the captivity or the darkness of the church, where the the church was hiding the word of God from people, the mass was only done in Latin, uh, no one knew the doctrine of God or who God was. Well, everyone's responsible for that. But the priest who is, let's say, not feeding the people the word of God is most responsible. And those who are under them who are not learning the word of God are responsible, but let's say less responsible. And then you can consider, well, they, those ones who didn't even have access to the word of God, a printed copy of God's word, they would be much less responsible than we are today knowing the word of God in a Bible that we can read and have in front of us. We can know and read anything we need to about the Word of God. We have access to good commentaries, good good sermons. Uh, We have an abundant wealth of resources. Would we not be those who uh, would be beaten severely if we did wrongly? Because we, by default of living where we live, meet the category requirement of knowing what the master requires and not doing what the master requires. And in every, every case, every situation, obviously God will do justly. He will do rightly. He will never punish someone inappropriately for their wrongdoing. He will always punish each one in accordance with what they sinned. So here we have uh, the teaching of God, uh, the hard saying of Jesus, the call of Christ to essentially then be a faithful and wise steward. To fear the master appropriately and to not uh, usurp the throne and to take the authority for yourself. So what are the marks of wisdom in the text? Uh, the wise servant doesn't know more or less than an unwise servant. Everyone who is, let's say, considered wise or unwise in these possible scenarios, uh, everyone who's considered wise or unwise is, uh, is going to be tasked the same. So the difference is not knowledge of what the master requires. The difference is obedience to what the master requires. So how does this play out? Well, uh, you might say today, everyone has access to God's word, what he says. Uh, We might say some more than others by either training or understanding or possibly discipleship in the word. So everyone has access. Uh, Now the question is, given the access, the knowledge that you have, uh, will you be obedient to the word of God, even if it says things you don't like it to say? Will you teach the word of God faithfully? Will you uh, carry on the words of the master faithfully, be obedient to what he commands? Or will you, like the unfaithful servant, do what seems good in your own eyes despite what the master's instructions give? What does this look like today? On the ground, the most striking example would be when the church says, even though the Lord has said that uh, these things are sins and marriage is between a man and a woman, the church says, well, I'm not so sure that I like to teach the full counsel of what God says, even though I can read the text and I can see that that's what it says. I don't like that so much. And I know other people won't like that so much. I will do what seems right in my own eyes. I will try to make God appeal to other people. And so I will tell them about a God who meets what they desire. I will usurp the throne. I I will do what seems right in my own eyes. Well, that servant, when found, will receive a severe beating for they knew what the master required and they did not obey what the master required so too would be anyone who pollutes the gospel of justification by grace alone and the substitutionary atonement of Christ. There are so many today who, with all their degrees and learning and knowledge and study of the original languages and access to reading of church fathers and ancient history, will conclude things about Jesus which are just unaligned with what scripture presents Jesus as. And for all their knowing and for all their knowledge, they will conclude Jesus doesn't fit my moral compass, my moral standard, my moral requirement. And so, and so I will tell people about a Jesus who is a good moral teacher, but not a one who demanded holiness before God. And so then I will blind them from ever being able to confess and repent from their sin. And I will, and I will receive a severe beating for I do things that the master uh, does not tell, but I do it anyway, because it seems fitting to me. And everyone who is led by such people uh, will be held accountable for being led astray. Now, this is where it gets hard. Because we would conclude if, if, if Jesus was, let's say, being in our eyes as just as possible, well, he would enliven he would them to the wrong teaching that they've been exposed to. And yes, that is true. But God is, in his own goodness, in his own providence, in his own understanding, and according to the counsel of his own will, Uh, He has set it forth in this way, that even those who are deceived and unknowing of what the master actually requires will be punished for not having known because the standard doesn't change. And this is what's hard. Because we consider unreached people groups today who don't know of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we cannot get ourselves off the hook and say, well, they must just make it to heaven because God didn't give them access to the gospel. We, we, we do that often to alleviate ourselves of a sense of responsibility and duty to get the gospel to people who are unreached. We are, we, are so, we are so quick to get ourselves off the hook and put the responsibility back on God when Jesus himself says that he will send the spirit into the world to convict the world of sin and he will send his disciples out to gather his people unto himself. He has in his own providence already given the standards and the parameters within which he works And so we, knowing what he requires, and then, let's say, concluding falsely what seems better in our own eyes, will alleviate ourselves of any sense of responsibility or duty uh, for what the master has tasked us with. So would it be if we were masters and servants over the household of God, and we taught our people, or you discipled someone and you taught them uh, something not in keeping with God and his character, uh, because you thought maybe they'd like to hear that more, or maybe you like to hear it more, so you're going to teach them about this Jesus or this God whom you've put forth. Here's the warning. The servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. Now here, that's the warning. Now here's the good news. Here's the, here's the promise. In both cases, in both parables, the, obviously the emphasis or the, the warning is on the negative, uh, a servant who's found sleeping or a servant who's found usurping authority. Uh, but there's also a, an assurance of blessing for the servant who is found doing rightly. Now, it's not so easy to pick up on because as soon as we read things, like he'll cut them to pieces, we begin to forget what was coming before it and, we, and it and we get tunnel vision and we start freaking out. But Jesus gives this assurance of reward for those who are found doing what he requires when he comes. The sure blessing is, uh, is there in verse 43, uh, and also, uh, again, in verse um, thirty-seven, uh, blessed are those who are doing—or uh, sorry, blessed are those who are uh, who the master finds awake when he comes. And also uh, in verse forty-three, blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. So there's an assurance of blessing for those who are meeting certain requirements, who are doing what they were tasked with, doing what they were responsible for. And so, God has given us, let's say, easy to understand instructions. He's given us uh, the Word of God and, and in our day certainly access to the Word of God in a way that it's easy for us to have access. Uh, the Word of God has this, has this clarity about it, this plainness of understanding that when you read it, you can read and understand that God is holy and we are not, that we are sinners who fall short of his glory. We, the Scripture has this quality about it where it's just so clear to understand. It is only with... Uh, much learning and much rejection of who this God presents himself to be that we get into situations where we become confused and muddled over the core issues of Scripture. That's not to say that every aspect of Scripture is abundantly clear to us. Uh, You know, as we've been studying on Thursday night, Daniel and the prophecies, some of that stuff is confusing. But what's not confusing is stuff like repent of your sin and believe in the Son of God. What's not confusing is that Jesus comes to die as the propitiation for all those who would believe in him. Those things are crystal clear in scripture. And so uh, you can say that uh, he's given us clear to understand instructions. Uh, He's he's then preserved those instructions for generations. And then even in a unique act of providence, he has given us uh, an abundance of English translations, which you have in front of you now. Uh, You can read at a lower level of English. You can read at a higher level of English. You can read in Old English. You can read in slang English. I mean, you can read the Bible in whatever translation you want to. And it just it's so accessible, it's so clear. And there comes this promise of reward. To those of you who know what the master requires, who teach faithfully what the master has taught you, who pass along the torch of discipleship faithfully and who are faithful stewards over what you've been tasked with, there remains a reward and a blessing for you when the master comes. Now for some, the master will come imminently into the world in judgment all at once in this cataclysmic event of triumph. Uh, For some of us, the master will come uh, as we sleep and he will call us home to himself. And in every case, when the master comes, either brings us to him or he comes to us, uh, he will have a time of sifting, a time of questioning, and a time where we will be asked a simple question. uh, Were you faithful to what I have tasked you with? Now, this is not a justification question. Are you saved or are you not? That is on the finished work of Christ alone. But here is a faithfulness question. Were you faithful or not? And here comes, let's say, maybe the hardest teaching in the text, which is that we've discussed in Luke's gospel two categories at least of people. There's uh, the people who reject the teaching of God outright, who are in rebellion to him, and those who are obedient to his word and faithful disciples. Now here comes a third category. People who call themselves disciples and are yet unfaithful. So if you like, there's three categories. There's those who don't call themselves disciples. There's those who do. And then within those who do call themselves disciples, there are those who are faithful and those who are unfaithful. Well, what category do the unfaithful belong in? (coughs) To the people who aren't disciples. And this isn't so clear as you're living about in the world because as you know today, you can go out and talk to almost anybody and they might tell you, I follow Christ. And they might not follow the same Christ as you. They might follow whatever they've imagined themselves to be. Well, Uh, Here we have uh, a category of person who will say that they are a steward who have been tasked with a certain thing and who are yet found unfaithful and they belong in the category of those who are just in rebellion. Uh, Judas is in this category. He is in abject rebellion against God and yet uh, he is at this point in time among the 12 faithfully listening and hearing and and hearing all this teaching and he, he does not do what the master requires and so he is cut off from the good blessings of God so too is it for us, just because you uh, are in a church or you surround yourselves with others who are believers or you uh, participate in the covenant people of God, uh, that does not mean, that does not in any way mean uh, that you are a faithful steward to the task. Uh, Cells can absorb things through osmosis, we cannot. We need to ourselves decide to follow after Christ, to be obedient to him, to render a full and holy service unto him uh, or not. But that is a decision that happens at an independent level for each and every one of us. Uh, And for those of us who have, let's say, more gracious access by the grace of God to the ordinary means of grace, to better fellowship, to better teaching, to better access to resources, uh, we will be tasked more heavily if we are found unconverted, unfaithful. We will be more heavily beaten uh, than those who are not. So consider this. Scripture is clear that there are faithful and unfaithful stewards and hear the call of Jesus in the text, who then is the faithful and wise steward? When he comes, will he find you faithful? Will he find you wise? Or will he find you unfaithful and deserving of punishment? I pray if you are uh, considering now your faithfulness before God, that you would deal with God before the end of the day, even before the end of the service, Uh, to pray, to uh, confess all the sin before uh, that, that comes to mind, and then to ask the Lord for a simple pardon, which he will assuredly give because he is a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, giving grace and mercy to generations upon generations and steadfast love to those who fear him. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God. You are all wise, all knowing, all sovereign And yet you are loving and kind, slow to anger. Lord, we thank you for your clear word. And we pray for conviction where necessary, encouragement where necessary, that by your spirit you would move and work in our hearts and minds now to impress upon us, your people, what you would have us hear. Would you give us clarity? Would you give us understanding? And Lord, by your grace, would you soften our hearts? so that we can hear all that is present in these words that we have just put before our eyes. We ask for your blessing as we now move uh, into the rest of worship, and uh, that we would be faithful and wise in this moment to worship you appropriately of the glory that you deserve. I pray this all in your name. Amen.